I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in Google or your podcast app of choice. Before we get into the episode today, a quick note to wineries about the Finger Lakes International Wine Competition. Wineries, please consider submitting entries to the Finger Lakes International Wine and Spirits Competition, without question for me, the most important competition out there. This competition is a fundraiser for Camp Good Days. Camp Good Days provides summer camping programs on the beautiful shores of Cuca Lake in Branchport, New York, as well as year-round recreational and support activities in the Rochester, Buffalo, Ithaca, and Syracuse, New York greater areas for children with cancer, sickle cell anemia, and their entire families. An unfortunate reality is that sickle cell anemia occurs most frequently in people of African and Hispanic descent. Camp Good Days is one of the very few, perhaps the only, program that supports children that have the full-blown disease with the required medical professionals that must be present. At Camp Good Days, participants have the opportunity to regain some of what cancer has taken away from them. While a vast majority of the children who attend reside in New York, Camp Good Days has no geographical boundaries and accepts children from all 50 states and all over the world. No child with cancer is ever turned away. Programs are provided at no cost to participants, and 90-plus percent of funds raised go directly to programs. I want to thank my friend and head judge, Bob Medill, for getting me involved and pushing hard to keep this message alive year-round, and for striving to make sure that this competition is a safe, socially distanced rethinking of wine competitions. And of course, anyone can donate at any time. For more information, visit fliwc cgd.com. Today on the podcast, Adam Teeter, CEO of VinePair. VinePair, as in vinepair.com, is a fantastic digital beverage content site geared toward millennials and Gen Z audiences. What I love about VinePair, both the podcast and via the written word, is that they always use data very effectively in their reporting. And so what we got into today a little bit was how exactly wineries and more broadly hospitality companies in general can and should use data more effectively with their marketing strategy. So here we go with Adam Teeter, CEO of VinePair. to a Northern Wine Odyssey. Thank you as always to Dave Miller for opening and closing music. Check him out at davemillerguitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Joining me today, Adam Teeter from Pair. Adam, what's going on? What's up, man? I dig this intro music. It's a really good album. It's just self-titled, Dave Miller. You can find it, you know, pretty much everywhere. Super fun. Instrumental, start to finish. He's an excellent uh, Chicago guitarist. Sweet. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 got, I have to do this. In, in great Vine Pear tradition, what did you drink over the weekend? What did I drink over the weekend? I had some interesting things. Let's see. So Friday night was my delayed 
Cinco de Mayo celebration with my wife. So basically, um, we're, we were not going to get in on the craziness on Wednesday. So we made some some delicious food and had some some tasty margaritas. And then actually, I'm going to write a piece on this on him. But um, I got to go on Saturday and check out the facility where Patrick, who makes the Amaro's Faccia Bruto. His facility in, yep. in the Pfizer building is all over the place these days, dude, his stuff is his liquids dope. And, uh, it was really cool to get to know him and Naomi, who is my wife. And I walked over there from where we live in Fort green. And first of all, I'd never been in the Pfizer building before. It basically has been completely converted from an old, you know, I think it was one of Pfizer's largest drug manufacturing facilities on the East coast. Uh, and it's sort of on the border between like, three neighborhoods, right? Williamsburg, Bed-Stuy, Clinton Hill. And now everything in the building is some sort of food drink manufacturing. Some artists are still there. I think they were who originally was there. But now it's like, it's just crazy, man. You go in there and there's people with startup bread companies, crackers, cookies, candy bars, simply gum is in there. It was, it was nuts. And so he's a, you know, in, has a space in there and uh, got to see what he's up to. And so, so that was some pretty tasty liquid that I got to enjoy this weekend. And where where are the ingredients coming from? So he is getting them all. With, I asked because, I mean, with Amaro, it's always a little bit, you know, or domestic produced Amaro, especially in a place like New York, I'm always curious, like, okay, where are you getting your citrus peels and things like that? So he is peeling the citrus, which is crazy. He's getting, you know, pounds and pounds and pounds of citrus. So what I like about what he's doing, which is really interesting, is he's taking this chef's approach to making Amaro. Um, so he was a former chef. He was the head chef of Rucola, in, if people are familiar with that, in sort of Borum Hill for nine years. And a lot of people who've gotten into the Amaro game are beverage people, right? They're psalms, they're bartenders. They're, a lot of them are reps that I've met who are like, oh, I was a rep and like Amaro was selling really well and I figured out how to do it, right? So he is bringing this chef's perspective to Amaro, which I think is really cool because, you know, at the end of the day, Amaro is a recipe. And so he's a tinkerer. And what I like about what he's doing, which is different than other people, not to say what other people are doing is not also cool, but he's actually not saying he's going to make a New York City inspired Amaro or that he's going to make a Amaro with only New York botanicals, right? Because there are people that are doing that and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. He's instead like, look, I'm you know Italian by heritage and I'm making Amaros inspired by Amaros I love in Sicily or in Piemonte or Lombardia, that kind of stuff. Um, which again is like, you know, a different take and really cool, but he's doing them with a lot less sugar because, you know, some Amaros you get from Italy are just like, whoa, <laughs> like, yeah, you so might as well so like- just drink super simple syrup. <laughs> So stylistically, how, I guess, how many is he making and you know what do they remind you of? So, like if you had to make a big brand comparison or something. Okay. So he's making, he's making four right now. Five if, he, if you count like his you – know, it's like a seasonal release that he makes with uh, green walnuts. But that one he didn't have for me to be able to sample. So he's making a Fernet mm-hmm. that cool. is much more – it's much fresher tasting. There's like some citrus running through it and it's not as like aggressively bitter. It's very, it's bitter, but like it's pleasurable bitter. It's not, it doesn't have the fake menthol mint characteristic that I think 
you know, Bronca has, but Bronca's mass produced, right? So it's just very different. He's making a Braulio inspired Amaro that's really tasty. Um, that was that right now, I think would be my favorite of what I've tried of, of what he's doing because it has all the sort of like Alpine herbs, botanicals you would you expect but again it's not like it's not overly sweet to compensate for the bitterness because the bitterness is sort of balanced everything i guess again if you think of it from a chef's perspective there's there's the balance like you know as a chef balances salt with acid and heat and those kinds of things he's taking that approach to the way he's creating the beverage so there's some amaros i've had from other startup producers around the country that are like going aggressively bitter right or aggressively mm-hmm. high in menthol or whatever and that those i don't love they they get a lot of love i think once when they initially come out cuz they're just so like whoa smack you in the face but they're not ones that i feel like people come would are going to come back to again again like it's probably a bottle that someone brings you and will sit on your bar for a while whereas i could see that he's probably going to sell a lot of this stuff uh, he is i mean he's doing really well um but i could see that people are repeat customers cuz they're really easy to drink he makes a sicilian inspired one that has a little bit more herbaceousness but you if you can think of it it's like an averna or a nonino mm-hmm. right it has that that strong orange running through but again it's not sickly sweet um like that's i like nonino was like baby's first amaro right it was like one of the first ones i had that i really i, I liked years and years ago but now i i have it again i realize like oh my god that amaro has so much sugar in it you know and like I'm just gonna, I'm going to be hung over the next day having one because it's just so much sugar, and so his aren't. And then of course I think he's doing what most people who also have gotten into tomorrow are doing, which is he is making an aperitivo. So he's making sort of a Campari esque, but his is like it's really interesting. It's like a it's a cross between Aperol and Campari, and it has this really amazing. Again, there's a lot of herbal notes that come through it, and it's not as sweet. And he's using the actual powder from you know the i can't remember the bug's name but the shells that's actually i was coloring it so he's going back to the old school way campari used to color the same way they do it i think capoletti called capoletti does the same thing yeah yeah yeah. so i thought you know super cool so that was like probably this you know the thing and then you listen to the podcast you know i don't take pictures of bottles so on sunday we had like a nice little lunch with people and i had a delicious orange wine but i cannot remember what it was called so i'm not going to tell you (laughs) (laughs) fair enough well, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the like just the austerity of of bitterness in in some of these modern craft amaros. Like, I feel the same way about wine. I mean, there's there's so much in particular sparkling wine and wines from like aromatic white grapes that I think are so shockingly dry, and they're they're marketing them the way they should, I suppose, which is that they're properly bone dry with absolutely no residual sugar. And I'm kind of like always have liked my Rieslings with a little bit of sugar. You know, I appreciate, yeah. you know, uh, Gewurz with the right amount of balance and s- sparkling wines with a little dosage as well. So I was drinking um, a local site, well, local for me up here, um, a-, a cidery called Rose Hill Farm, which is in uh-huh. Red Hook, stone's throw from where I live. And they have a number of different sparkling ciders and he makes wine too, uh, really cool stuff. And so over the weekend I had – it's called their um, Selection Suspo- – uh, what is it called here? Selection Suspendu, I guess Suspended Selection, which is just like – I don't know what the apples were. It's sort of just a blend. But uh, definitely dry, no resi- residual sugar, 2019 Pat Nat method. And when I first popped it, I was like, okay, this is, this is good. I, I get it. Texturally, it's great. The bubbles are great. 
the the lee's aging all of it's there i was just like ah this for me though is just too austere like i don't know that i'm going to be able to enjoy as much of this as i want to but i kept at it It was like right around seven percent alcohol so you know no harm there really right and and by the time i got through like halfway through the bottle i was really really enjoying it i was no longer missing any of that rs that i typically do like a little bit of for for that balance i'm just like stuck in that in, in that i don't know off dry style that i've just loved so much over the years so that ended up being a, a really really pleasurable bottle to drink and i already picked up another one so well, have see, you ever had that good. stuff rose hill farm i have not but now that you've told me about it i want to try it i don't get you know i don't drink a lot of cider which is not intentional it's just I never think about it when I'm out to buy something. And then, you know, most of the restaurants around me in Brooklyn are not pouring cider, but I do enjoy it when I have it. There's actually, I have a, a bottle or two um, for in my fridge right now from Shaxbury. I think they make really great cider. Yeah, I'm the same. I don't drink a lot of it either, although I'm starting to drink a little bit more just because there are so many cideries near where I live now. And it's like, mm -hmm. you just drive around the Hudson Valley and there's just, you you can't even really see the like facilities. It's just like a sign at the driveway at the end of the road. It's like, you know, X cidery, X distillery, X right. brewery, X, you know, petting zoo, X whatever. Just so <laughs> much like agrotourism. I mean, it's just unbelievable. There's like the amount of stuff that's popping up. So but no, I, I I'm with you. And every year it's like the cider people are like, this is gonna be the year. This is gonna be the year for cider. And then every year it's not. It's not. Yeah. And it's it's hard. I mean, look, it got really – cider got hurt, I think, in a lot of ways by this sort of attachment that it had to brewing culture for so long where breweries mm -hmm. thought, well, we'll make cider as our gluten-free option, but then they thought they should make it sweet. And you had you know, sort of these bigger brands that came out of the woodwork who were just making – very sweet ciders. And so, yeah, I think that that now alcoholic apple juice is sort of the, the reputation it has. Um, they're kind of hitching onto wine. Yeah. And I mean, I think the people that are, that are hitching onto wine are, are doing better. But again, it's like, you know, well, do I want a pet nat cider or do I want a, an actual pet nat? With, like, so it's, I think it's hard for consumers to wrap their heads around what it is. And also then, you know, a lot of these ciders are expensive because they're coming from small producers. There's a premium price there. And then again, you're you're already at this sort of, I guess, what am I trying to say? There's there's a barrier there where you're going to have to convince, which means that like the only people that are going to be able to sell ciders are really good shops that can hand sell and explain to the consumer why. Because I don't think they're going to go out and do it on their own. Yeah. And it's – I always bring – I always come back to this, which was that I, I feel lucky to have worked in some of the places where I did. So I worked at Hearth Restaurant and Terroir Wine Bar circa 10 years ago, Gramercy Tavern circa eight years ago. And those places had these big cider programs. There were mm -hmm. always around like 20 ciders on the list, maybe eight or 10 by the glass. And in the like four years that I worked at those combined institutions – I think I can count on two hands how many glasses of cider I poured. Yeah. And, I mean, and it was just like looking back, like that was, you know, back in the day when bigger was better, more was more, you know, buy, make, make these huge beverage lists. And so I was lucky to be immersed in those programs when basically there was just so much trial and error, like 20 ciders, 20 sherries. 
20 Madeira. It's just like what worked, what didn't work. And cider just with that kind with with the amount of skews that that those programs featured, it just in my in my experience, I just remember pouring so much of it down the drain. So there, I mean, there is so many delicious cider products out there, and and I hope that I hope that the guy that that <laughs> the people saying now's the year for cider, I hope that they're right. One of these years, yeah, <laughs> agreed. agreed. <laughs> but, I, but I don't know. Anyway, so moving on, the, uh, what we're here to talk about today is is data in in the wine industry, and I. For as long as I've been checking out VinePair, uh, whether uh, you know via the written word or the podcast, you guys do a great job presenting data and using data, you know, to to your advantage in terms of producing journalism. Have you got? Has it always been that way from the start, or did that happen gradually for you guys? Yeah, it's. I mean, like, look from the start of VinePair, we always looked at numbers in order to confirm. Yes or no, this is a story worth pursuing. I think when we first started the publication, you know, we got a lot of sort of you know criticism from people being like, "Oh, like what's what does the world need another beverage publication?" You know, they're usually small in readership, yada yada yada. And when we sort of would push back, we'd say, "Well, that's because we don't think that people are writing for what people actually care about, about what people actually care about. You know, we think like, and our joke would always be, and you sort of, you know, led me into it with your, your experience at hearth and things like that. I was like, the world doesn't need another, like Sherry's the next big thing article because all we would have to do is look at data to prove that's not true. Right. And, but the world does need another article about like, what's really cool happening in the world of sort of, you know, wine in France or, you know, what are some cool Italian regions people can be excited about? Like, those are things that people are getting pumped about or, you know, the next cool hazy IPA. But I think that there was a lot of sort of like inside baseball writing and less inclusive writing. And so we wanted to sort of create a publication that we could ensure was talking about everything in the industry. Um, and to do that, we knew we had to look at data because Josh and I um, recognized that we live in New York. And we're in a bubble and like, look, I mean, I live in Fort Greene, right? I, I lived in the East Village until a year and a half ago, but then I moved to Fort Greene and like, I get joked by people on my staff that I'm like in the natural wine capital of New York City, right? And it's kind of true, right? If I go to any restaurant in New York, I mean, in, in Fort Greene, the wine program's natural and whether like I'm into that or not, <laughs> like that's the program. And I could think that's the entire world. Right. If I didn't step outside and if I also didn't look at like what actually data shows. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that that's how you, you grow a publication that is read by, you know, all people. And I think it also is important because it, it helps us really realize that, you know, maybe we are pushing wines that we're, we're excited about that other people aren't excited about. And why are we doing that? Or how do we help get people more excited about these kinds of wines in a way that feels more like, oh, you don't know about that. Which you haven't been around. You don't know wine. You know, like how, how do we explain instead that there are ways to get into, into these wines that, that, that feels more accepting? Um, and so then we decided, you know, how do we present this data to other people? Because we think it's important. We think it's something that people should be aware of, right? Like it's one thing to you, – you can make a claim, sure, but like 
it's not true unless there's actual data, right? You can tell me all you want that like the biggest thing is X, Y, or Z, but you have the numbers to prove it because if you don't, then that's just your opinion at the end of the day. That's just based on your friend group and who you're talking to. And it makes you think that it's the next big thing, but the data doesn't prove that. Another really great example is Mezcal, right? It's changed now this year, but when we started VinePair seven years ago, dude, no one cared about Mezcal. It was right. the, the it was the hot thing in New York City. You know, there were Mezcal bars, et cetera, but like no one in the whole country cared about it. No one had heard about it. And still, it's grown, especially in the pandemic, but often incredibly small base. It is still a very small spirit that most consumers aren't that familiar with. If they are, it's still incredibly polarizing for all the reasons that it would be, right? It's, I mean, think about how huge. Isla Scotch is to most people, right? Heavily peated, mm-hmm. smoky. That's what Mezcal is. So this idea that it was going to be the next huge thing and you saw all this money dumped. I mean, I've been sent more bottles of Mezcal to the office from the next entrepreneur who thinks they're going to have they're going to be the next Casamigos in the Mezcal space is insane. And and again, like the data just doesn't support that that's going to happen at all. Um, so that's why we've always used it because again, I love Mezcal cocktails, but I do find that the majority of readers, including myself, when I'm going to drink an agave spirit, I drink tequila much more often. And so what is that? I mean, I think you're obviously, you know, we do live in a bubble in New York in terms of the beverage industry. And I think it's even more extreme than we think. So I was talking to one of my siblings not too long ago, who is an avid gin drinker, has been a gin Mm -hmm. drinker for, you know, as long as I can remember. And I asked her, oh, what are you drinking? And she mentioned, oh, I have this new gin or whatever. Maybe she got it from, you know, there's a number of distilleries popping up in the Detroit area where they live. Mm -hmm. And somehow like the subject of a Negroni came up and, and she didn't know what a Negroni was. And like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to poke fun or, or, you know, throw shade or anything like that. But to me, for a minute, in that in that second, I was like, "Oh wow, you you've not had a Negroni, and you're a gin drinker, and the Negroni is like the biggest cocktail in the world right now." But we also live in New York City, where there's Negroni bars and Amaro bars and things like that. And, and I mean, it's just it blew my mind. This was maybe last year or something yeah. that the ubiquity of a Negroni is not really a thing outside of whatever big cities. So no, it's true. It's really true. It's funny. I do think we, you know, we just, so we in the wine industry, or maybe just because we live in New York, so much of what is written about, what is spoken about is anecdotal. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for us, like, I think, you know, People who are in New York who are our, our loyal readers may sometimes get it twisted and think like, oh, Vine Pear is like anti-natural wine or Vine Pear, you know, talks down about Mezcal. No, we don't, but we are a national publication. And that is our distinction that we are very clear about. Do we write a lot about like what's happening in sort of the the bubbles of of wine, beer, and spirits? 100%. 100%. Yeah, but I would imagine most write, of your contributors are New York-based. 
Yeah, but like we have to write about these things that you are discussing. We do. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are people who've seen our articles that are like, what's, you know, here, here's why you should be drinking a Negroni and be like, oh, that's, they're so late. I've been drinking a Negroni for the last 10 years. But you are completely right because I had an identical experience to you two years ago. Well, to, to mm-hmm. your sister. So I went home to, it was, I guess it was the fall before the pandemic. So not even two years ago. I can't even place when that is anymore. Um, but I went home to Auburn, Alabama, where my parents are college professors. We went, they wanted to take me to this great new bar that actually has gotten a on food list, right? We don't write about food, but, you know, food and wine, best new chef, whatever, um, for the Southeast. And I went to the bar because we were waiting for our table and I asked for a Negroni and the bartender said, what's that? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, and I felt like such an asshole. And I was like, oh, don't worry. Don't. And he goes, no, no. Can you teach me? Like he was super nice about it. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll teach that's you how to make cool. it. But like that's at, you know, the farm to table restaurant in this college town that just, you know, that where the chef is getting accolades but like still, that's not what people are asking for, you know? And I yeah. looked around the t- and, and I looked around and this is the other anecdote I tell about that night at dinner is I looked around the room and I will tell you, Paul, at least seven tables had bottles of the prisoner on it. Wow. And like, okay, that makes a lot of sense because it is a premium wine that people are aware of that to them equals fancy when they're out. But I was like, you would never see that in New York. Maybe one table at a steakhouse, maybe one. Like I was at Peter Luger's a few weeks ago and I did see one table that had it on their table. But like seven bottles at seven different tables is like, holy shit. Like we are in a crazy bubble in New York if we think that that's a wine that people don't care about anymore. Totally. I love this. And 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 what you said, what you said about the Negroni rings true on on multiple levels for me and it's almost like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't like anytime i'm in a bar like that yeah and i want to order an americano like i'm looking at the back bar and i see the campari and i see the dolan sweet vermouth and i just want something low abv that i that i know they can make me i'm like do do i order it by name do i say americano and risk uh, the 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 bartender saying, "Oh, we we don't have uh, an espresso machine." Exactly. Or or is the bartender? Or do I say, "Hey, can I have um, a Campari sweet vermouth and soda with an orange twist?" Yeah, I know what an, an americano is. It's like one one of the two things is going to happen. Either they're going to get mad at me that I that I insulted them by ordering it just by calling out the spirits. Yep. Or, or they're not going to know. So yeah, I uh, I've been there. It's very funny. <laughs> Um, okay, so I want to I want to chat just a little bit about the episode that uh, on the Vine Pair podcast you guys did recently about red wines, essentially by far still being the dominant wine that people are drinking in this country. Yep. Um, and in particular, what you mentioned was that for some reason, in your experience, wineries or the wine industry, I guess uh, at large, tend to not look at data. In comparison to some of the other booze sectors, what, why do you think that is? Oh my gosh, there's so many reasons we could unpack right now, but I think, <laughs> I think well, one. I think of the- that you're right, which which is why it's sort of doubly fascinating. So I think there's a f- so they definitely don't, and I think 
there's a few things. And everyone I talk to says, yeah, like I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And yet the status quo remains. I think for one thing, there are – I think of wine a lot differently than I think of of beer and spirits. And um, this this may be because of my background in music. So like I worked at – you know before starting Vine Pair, I was a journalist, but I wasn't really a practicing journalist. I was instead working at indie rock record labels. And so I, I look at wine the same way, is that – Wine has communities inside of communities. And when you get to the community in wine, it's the equivalent of Jack Black in High Fidelity. (laughs) There is a fear of disrupting the community, right? You could never – like if everyone else likes this band, even if you really don't get it, like wait, like this literally – they are just ripping off the stones, (laughs) I don't like I don't get how this is the greatest new indie rock band of our generation like this literally sounds like Led Zeppelin. You cannot say that. And I think in certain circles it it becomes hard in certain wine circles to be able to challenge whether we should embrace all natural wine or just well-made wine and maybe not call it natural or whether we all have to be super excited about a crazy obscure grape if others aren't or like do we all have to say that at the end of the day champagne is our end-all be-all wine that's literally everybody's answer right is that true yeah <laughs> like for some people it's not you know like my tastings director keith like his end-all be-all wine is barolo like that's what he wants nebbiolo he's like i he's like i will take that every day of the week everyone else can have the champagne you know so i think there is a little bit of that where because of that we we don't want to look at data to refute what i guess what what the cool kids are doing. And then on top of that, I think because wine is treated as art and spirits and beer really in the, in the same way, aren't it also comes with its own baggage of like, well, you don't look at data when you look at art. Well, yeah, you do. A lot of people look at data when they look at art, especially collectors, but there's this belief that we don't do that. And then, you know, I think there also can be this, this idea of like, well, for people who work in wine all the time, the hits get boring, just like for people who work in like music all the time, pop music can get boring, you know? So you don't want to listen to pop every single day. You want to listen to like music that's more challenging to you, whether it's freeform jazz or, you know, really interesting indie rock or sort of underground hip hop because pop is a formula. But for the majority of Americans, pop is pleasure, right? That's like, that's what they listen to because it's fun and it's catchy. And because top 40 is what you get to blast when you're in the car with your friends. And they also like cabin Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from California because it's fun and it's good and it delivers like pop music almost never doesn't deliver. And it's the same way with, I think a lot of wines, but there's this sort of other side of the, the industry. And the problem is that that other side of the industry is actually a lot of the industry. But couldn't we say, couldn't you make that same argument for craft beer and craft spirits? Why is it different? Why aren't there those communities within the community over there behaving the same way as in the wine industry? So within craft beer, potentially, but like that's why craft beer was struggling over the last 10 years. Like we don't want to, wine doesn't want to become craft. I know that wine wanted to for a while. I have my own theories as well about like why I think some certain certain movements in in wine exploded over the last decade. I think a lot of that was to try to be like craft beer because craft beer looked like it was a lot more fun 
five, 10 years ago, right? Awesome tasting rooms, people hanging out, you know, chugging beers, but craft beer was not an inclusive community. It was a community that basically was speaking to white men with beards and didn't really expand outside of that. So, it, you know, that sort of backfired on them. People turned away from craft beer in a lot of ways. And like, that's, I think, a huge reason why you've seen this massive boom in seltzer, right? So I mean, it's just like fun, delicious, depending on who you talk to. Not you know, marketed easy. to one specific gender. It's to everyone, right? And now, and so why are why why does everyone think that craft breweries are making seltzer? Because they're following the money at this point, because they need to. You know, there's only a few breweries that are still not making a seltzer, and those breweries, to be fair, are the breweries that I think had had always done a really good job of being welcoming spaces to everyone. Like one of my favorite breweries in in the city, Threes. You go there, and there's people of all you know, backgrounds, sexes, et cetera. And it's a very inclusive place. But then, you know, you go to some of these breweries that were big time like craft beer heads and they've and they're they've got a seltzer. So they it sounds like, so so beer has lapped wine. And, and beer has. And it, it it's it seems easy to understand why that is. I mean you can make beer almost anywhere, right? You can't grow grapes everywhere. You can make it year round. It's there's there's big money, there's small money, there's middle money. It, it, it's it's sort of just a little bit more of a perfect aggregate, isn't it? Yep, it is. And then you know, in terms of spirits, spirits is really interesting because, and this is the difference, I think. And I don't know, you know, maybe this is also happening in wine. We just you know, it, wine's just so much bigger in the world of spirits. The people who are really big spirits buffs recognize that the big peeps just do it better. There's not this backlash of like wanting to go indie, right? Like there is a blind devotion in the world of bourbon for anything that comes out of Buffalo Trace. Buffalo Trace is a massive distillery. <laughs> massive. But like there's no backlash that they they are the quote unquote man. You know, and the same when you talk about when I hear people talk about Tanqueray right it's a great gin that gin heads are like yeah i can i can honestly respect that it is a very good very well made gin and that's always been interesting to us about the world of spirits like well i think bartenders in particular the the ones with some influence seem to me to be a little bit more open minded when 100%. it comes to embracing some of those big brands and they have whether, to be right whether it's serious or ironic doesn't matter and they have to be because, you know, again, at the end of the day, the bartenders also realize that like, well, they get to make a delicious drink regardless. And if they are a bar program that doesn't have, you know, p- pick a, a, well, a well-known spirit, I don't know, like Grey Goose behind the bar and someone asks for a Grey Goose Cosmopolitan and they can't deliver, they just lost a sale. Whereas with the wine programs, we kind of treat it as like, especially in, in the restaurant world. Oh, you wanted that? Oh, yeah, we don't do Napa. I mean, I, I don't know if you heard the story that I told b- before at uh, on on the Vine Bear podcast. That's one of the ones that's been the most like that stuck with me the most in the last year. Is I was at a wine bar in my neighborhood, and this group of women came in. It was four of them, and they sat down. And I was so this was pre pandemic. I wonder if the place would have changed how they treated them post. But they came in. They sat down, and. The server came over. He was also the beverage director because I had met him earlier in the night. And 
they said to him, we're looking for a full-bodied red wine. And he said, this is a natural wine bar. We don't have full-bodied red wines here. And he made them feel like shit. And then they asked what he would recommend. And he pointed them to one of the more expensive wines on their list. They bought it. I knew the wine. I knew they were going to hate it. I knew it was full of volatile acidity. Like I knew all of these things because I knew who the producer was. And they hated it, Paul. And I, I just listened to them complain about it. And one of the friends said, just choke it down and we'll leave. Just choke it down and we'll leave. How the fuck is that fun? Sorry, I don't know if you if you if I can curse on your podcast, but um, so you can you can bleep that out if you need. But like, that's not cool, you know. And I feel like the bartenders know they don't want to lose that sale, and they don't want to say, "Oh, we don't have Grey Goose, but we have this really obscure vodka made from you know these people who grow their own potatoes in a basement." You know what I mean? Like if they 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 probably can have that for the geek that comes in, but they also have the Grey Goose, and so there well, is I- this sort of embrace, I guess, in a weird way. And and I, this is simply why I think celebrity bartenders just totally exceed whatever the celebrity sommelier is. When you think about it, I mean, what do celebrity sommeliers we see? What I don't know, endorsing like Zalto glasses or yep. the Coravan in like you know glossy wine magazines. Meanwhile, Ivy Mix is in a fucking Seven Up commercial. Yep, exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <It's> like- <laughs> She's like at the level of an NBA player. Exactly. <laughs> Soms exactly. are there, you know, with their glasses. Exactly. No, 100%. Sorry, no, but it's true. I mean, because they're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, it's interesting. You know, you'll see them in a Don Julio ad or in a Patron ad. Like they don't care because they do know as long as they can, they can vouch for the juice and they know the process, even if it's owned by a larger brand, they're okay with it. And they understand that it makes their customers happy and they can make great drinks using those liquids. So yes, there's not like a – if you had a bar in – even in New York City, if you had a cocktail bar and all they use was craft spirits, it would be out of business in a month because people want to go in and still ask for liquids they know. And I think also a lot of bartenders recognize that it takes a long time to master a lot of these spirits. I mean – There's a lot of new bourbon distilleries in the country, and most of the juice is crap. That's why everyone's still buying it from MGP, because it takes a long time to figure out how to age whiskey well and make something that's really, really delicious. There's a few, obviously, that are are doing it well, but they are very much the minority. And everyone admits that, which is why like some of the most talked about, like, quote unquote, craft brands in you know, in the world of spirits right now, like you have uh, Barrel Bourbon and Pinhook, and they're all going and buying someone else's juice and blending it, right? Because they're saying that's going to be their expertise is the blending. And maybe they're also distilling on the side and we don't know a lot about it yet, but like that's how they're building a name for themselves because distilling and aging is really hard. So, you know, yeah, it is, it's very different. And I wish that wine would at least look at the data more and say to it themselves, you know, at the end of the day, too, it's a business, and we should have some stuff that make people feel good. So I, I like your music comparison earlier in terms of zeroing in on the fact that there are communities within communities. And in particular, I find that natural wine, for, for as loud a megaphone as that circle has right now, I think that a one of the reasons that it it does have that megaphone and and we do perceive it as being so of the moment and so fashionable right now is because it it is a relatively small 
medium. It's a relatively small circle. So like, again, music, when you have these small fringe genres, something like punk rock or Mm -hmm. jazz, right? These small fringe genres, they become, because they're small, they're easy to catalog. So something like natural wine, which is in comparison to the broader world of wine, is a small community. And it I think one of the fascinating one of the reasons it draws younger wine drinkers and industry, um, people who want to work in hospitality and wine-centric places, because of its sort of smaller niche in comparison to the broader world of wine, which was 10 years ago, I mean, the the whole, oh, you want to work in wine? Well, you better start studying. And right. now it seems to be, oh, you want to work in wine? Well, come on into this natural wine community. It's much smaller and you don't have to pay attention to a lot of uh, this other, these other, you know, places and, and just, uh, you know, classification laws or whatever it is. It takes, it's, it's quicker to become fluent with, with the circle and it uh, just kind of makes it a less daunting task, you know, and and obviously this is not everybody. There are many people who still want to take on the whole world of wine, but I think that there's a lot more who are embracing the simplicity and the the slightly smaller amount of homework that there is to do with natural wine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I, I do think that that's actually kind of a wonderful thing to see that people are just enjoying what it is that they like as opposed to insisting that wine be this, well, I got to go home and hit the books after your restaurant shift. Like that's no fun. Um, no. So I, I, I do like that. Mm there is this embrace of having fun within uh, the natural wine circle, but we, we have to acknowledge that it is smaller and it is just a little bit easier to become fluent with that circle, at least in the fashionable sense. But I, I want to hear from you if you, if you've researched this at all, um, which is, you know, we, we tend to talk a lot about the millennial generation right Mm -hmm. now as the audience that, you know, the wine industry should be focused on. And it does seem like they are interested in natural wine. They are interested in these sort of um, new proprietary blends that that you know young winemakers are are getting into, largely because it's just they can only get their hands on certain grapes and a certain amount of grapes. So sometimes you have to blend to make you know a, an amount of wine that you can actually sell. And it just seems that that. Um, Younger people are are whether they're in natural wine or just discovering wine for the first time are pretty interested in what is new and maybe not so much in what is dominant. So if we were talking about California, obviously in terms of grape acreage, things like Cabernet, Zinfandel, Chardonnay, etc. You know, here in New York, in the Finger Lakes, Riesling, over in Europe, Left Bank Bordeaux, Right Bank Bordeaux, things that are just very much grape focused, right? Cabernet, Merlot. Or even in in Burgundy, white Burgundy, like 100% Chardonnay. With a lot of the younger wine drinkers, I hear so much interest in these oddball grapes out in California, whether it's you know old old vine Mission or Pais or whatever, uh, you know old vine, you know newly rediscovered Chenin Blanc in the in the Central Valley, and then all the other styles of wine, Pet Nat, Skin Contact you know, rosés year round or, or whatever, hybrid grapes on the East Coast. There's definitely a lot of anecdotal evidence that points to millennials enjoying this genre of wines over the classics. In your experience, what does the data say? So 
the data. So the question I'm going to ask you is, what do you think comes first in this? The chicken or the egg? Meaning, if these are the wines that millennial drinkers are being given by the cool restaurants and bars in their area, and these are the choices they're being given by the wine shops, then they think this is wine. So is this being created by millennials driving it? I don't think so. Is it being created by millennial workers? Yes. And even and Gen, you know, young Gen X, right? Right. So like I think the majority of people that I talk to, you know, and it's funny because when we have new we, we really try when we hire at VinePair, we're hiring journalists, right? So I've hired journalists who've worked at food publications, who've worked at sports publications, et cetera. They don't have to come in having a beverage background. We 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 can teach you that. You have to be a really good writer. It's funny, one of our editors that said to me, you know, they'd been at top, top food publications, had no idea really what natural wine was, just that they were supposed to like it. And they're, you know, a writer in New York. Like they're like, well, yeah, we wrote about it a lot because we were, we, you know, that's, and I said, well, why? Was, they said, well, that's because that's what all the top restaurants served. So like, and if these are what the top restaurants are choosing to serve and, and you're excited about the food, then that's the wine you're excited about, right? If the top restaurants were saying, no, they want to serve white burgundies and et cetera, that's what you would get excited about. But those wines have become super expensive. I think a lot of it with natural wines affordability. I don't think the majority of consumers have any idea what these grapes are in these field blends, right? It's just a white from California that they really like, but like they're not tr- they're not getting super geeky about the fact that this is a Chenin Blanc or a Cab Franc, et cetera. They're just not. They're getting geeky about it being a Chardonnay or a Merlot because they know those grapes and those grapes have been around for a while. But I think what natural wine does is it, it natural wine kind of gives this idea in certain groups that like you don't have to worry about that anyway. Just like do you, you know, and that's and that is actually what I like about natural wine for for some for some of the parts of the movement is like, it's, do you think it's good or not? Is it fun? Which, you know, 10 plus years ago, wine was more serious in a lot of ways. And then it was like, can you analyze this? Can you blind this? Can you? And then it's like, well, this isn't fun, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, natural wine is that, that sort of almost super, super, super overcorrection, which is like, how do we make this fun? Okay, well, let's just make wines that are playful and that, you know, maybe don't take it so seriously in terms of, you know, what happens in the cellar. And like, if, if there's an, inf- you know, infestation of Brettanomyces, who cares? That's part of the character. And like, we love all our children equally. And that I think, you know, for a lot of people is also like, cool. So I don't have to worry about it. Like if I don't, if I don't get it, I mean, when I used to first, like when I was first getting into wine and then Keith and I were doing like these, these fun music series with wine and stuff. And we would do, we would talk to, you know, people who come to see these concerts afterwards. They, there was just so much anxiety around what you, what they thought they were supposed to taste. Oh, I heard someone say there were strawberries in this, but I don't get that. Like, do, do, do I not understand wine? And there, I see a lot less of that language around natural wine. And that's a good thing for wine. It's just that I think it's also because there's a lot of very easy to discern flavors in some natural wines, right? Just, ju- you know, fruit juice and, uh, you know, very sour notes and things like that, kombucha. But if we could do that about conventional wine, which I hate the, the term conventional wine, but if we could do that around white burgundy, just like, hey, don't worry about what you taste. Do you like it? Is this delicious to you? Awesome. You should aspire to these wines because they're some of the most famous in the world and they're beautiful. Right. So people would get it and get into it. So in terms of 
what we're what we're talking about anecdotally, the fact that you know X young person goes into to a place in New York or San Francisco yep. or Chicago, Charleston or Detroit, whatever, and learns about these uh, learns about what is new and exciting is is that still anecdotal when we get to the rest of the country in terms of the South and the Midwest and the Southwest is. Is that happening in those parts or is that still largely, and I'm talking about, again, the millennial generation, uh, when we get into those sort of outer other areas of the country, is it still more of a classicist palette in terms of what the data shows? I mean, the data shows that, you know, for the most part, what people still love is Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Grigio, and they always have, and, and it's gotten more, it's gotten even stronger in the pandemic. This this rush towards comfort foods has been massive. And this because these wines deliver the what they're expecting them to deliver. So and, without without totally ta- trying to, you know, tackle this conundrum, would you say that in general it's no matter where you are in the country, it's probably pretty safe to continue to produce your classicist style of 100%. whatever. One, okay. Okay. 100%. I mean, you know, and if you can figure out you know, this is your Bordeaux blend. I mean, I'm I'm looking to the right of me in this room that I'm in, and there's like a bunch of wines that just got sent to me from Virginia. And you know, Virginia's making lots of red and Bordeaux style. And I know a few wineries now in Virginia that are like moving to the natural wine side. I'm like, well, the people making the classics are going to do a lot better <laughs> because there's going to be a much larger community for that for a long time. People looking for really well made wines that age and are collectible, et cetera. Like that's what people still want. Um, and especially when you're getting into these other parts of the country, you have to remember that, like, you know, for the majority of Americans, we still really love luxury brands. We've always loved luxury brands as Americans. And luxury brands means luxury regions that are famous, like Napa and Sonoma and Burgundy and Bordeaux and Tuscany. And we're interested in these other subregions. But like we are interested in them because when you explain to us why, you know, why we should care. You know, that's why I think like finally, 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 it seems to me you're cl- much closer to it than I am, but that like there's this massive interest in wines from the Finger Lakes. Because I think Americans, especially in this region, have started to realize that like high end Riesling is really great and that New York makes the best of it or some of the best of it in the country. Right. So like, if you want, if you want, you know, ageable, delicious, high-end white wine, this is a region you should start thinking about to visit and to buy wines from and things like that. Americans still really care a lot about that, and I think they care much more about that than you know, really obscure pet nats. I think that that kind of stuff is fun once in a while, but like it's it also is intimidating in in another way. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think that you know the New York wineries face a little bit of a of a head scratch because on the one hand you do have New York City to market to. And it's pretty tough to get in to New York City with your Riesling, right? Because all these wineries in the Finger Lakes make most of them make multiple different Rieslings and they're all right. fighting for the same, you know, piece of the market share in New York City and I know in my experience it's a little bit easier if you come in with like a a solid cab franc or a really solid sparkling wine or uh even you know even a chardonnay or a pinot gris or something like that 
get a new buyer hooked on that and then say, oh, hey, by the way, try my Riesling. Like I, I, I've, I've noticed that it's, it's a tough sell with the Riesling because there's just a glut of it right now. And sadly, you know, I, when I check the Cornell classifieds, there's, there's typically a lot of Riesling for sale uh, at the end of harvests. But Riesling aside, because that's a conversation for a yeah, total another day. <laughs> separate uh, podcast episode. In terms of, uh, of marketing for, for, for wineries, knowing what, what we do know about these little pockets of, of fashionable nightlife in, in the big cities, but then the rest of the country, does it make sense, according to the data, to sort of have a couple different and fluid marketing messages for your e-commerce model? Yeah, so you're, I mean, selling, I think, you're selling certain wines to a different part of the country while you're still able to, you know, talk to the the New York cities and the Charlestons and the DCs and stuff about your whatever's new and exciting. Yeah, and I think you know, in that regard, you have to you have to figure out too, like what are you what are you going in with? So, what's the story, and who are you trying to sell to, and what does their customer base want? You know, and how can you connect your wine to other wines that people may have had and loved, right? So, you know, hey, we're a winery in Virginia, but you could easily compare our red blends to, you know, great reds coming out of Bordeaux or something, right? So consumers say, okay, cool, cool, cool. I know what I'm getting. Like, this makes sense. Definitely want to try this. You know, heard, heard the name Bordeaux. You know, they hadn't had a lot of Bordeaux, Right. So understand what this is, and I understand it's, the, it's a Virginia style, but I can sort of wrap my head around that. I think that's really important. I also think that like, you know, you can have two, but you also don't want to look like you're trying too hard uh, in terms of you know how we're how we're viewing things. But the biggest thing the data has always showed is in any of these markets, right, is actually the importance of wine shops at the end of the day. And, you know, we have, I'm, I'm sort of going around in terms of answering your question, but um, <laughs> we have talked about this a lot at Vine Pair that there always seemed to us to be much more emphasis on the part of all producers, not just the international ones that would come to New York, but all producers on restaurants and how important it was to go on the list and how that was where they thought they were going to have discovery. And we would always say, no, like the discovery happens in the shop because that's where the consumer is guaranteed. The wine's going to be there the next day. They can come back again and again. You know, if you're, if you're out with friends at a dinner, you may not remember you forgot to take a picture of the label. Like I always do. You didn't write it down. You come back and like the wine's off the list and they don't remember who, what server you had. And so they're not really sure what wine you ordered. Maybe now with resin, things like that, they can pull up your information, but like then you're going through a lot of work to try to remember that one bottle. Whereas like if you have a local wine shop, and you go in there and they turn you on to a you know a great wine or a great style from like the central coast of California or cool stuff coming out of like Itata in Chile or something you can go back and try more and you can get really into it and so i think that like the bigger thing is for any of these wineries like have a you really need to have an on premise sorry off premise you know wine shop strategy like how are you how are you building your brand how are you expanding your wine through the shops because everyone i know who started brands in the last 4 to 5 years the most successful are the people who've done it through retail by far 
Yeah. I mean, it's like a, a psalm can talk about a wine, but <clears throat> you know, 50 people who don't follow that psalm on Instagram can walk into a shop and get hooked on yeah. a wine. I mean, daily. like, do you know, I think I've talked about her before, but do you know Mary Taylor? Uh, Mary Taylor me. Selections. So she, she was in the wine business. I know her because she, uh, She's an alumnus of Stern like I am, and she actually came to do a site visit to VinePair one day when we opened the offices up, and I got to meet her. And she's built this wine brand, which is like she, – she's it's a negotiant wine brand. Yeah, are um, they like, like – she's like natural wine distribu- distributor? Not na- – she would she would get angry if we called it natural wine. Okay. Um, but you know, organic biodynamic wines, but she sure, – it's, okay. it's Mary Taylor Selections on the label, and then she goes and you know buys um, wine from – different producers around Europe and she's doing some in the U S now, but you know, it's her name on the front of the bottle and then their name below hers. And then, you know, whatever the region was. So it, this is her Provencal Rosé or this is her, her Pomerol, et cetera. And she is basically 100%. Now it's exp- a little bit less. Um, it, you know, there's a little bit of a percentage now that, that's restaurants, but from the beginning, it was all off premise, all all you know shops she's crushing it crushing it and she also did the really smart thing and she went outside of new york so she's you know in the great wine shop in the berkshires she's in a lot of wine shops in maine she'll probably come talk to you <laughs> like she you know she's in shops in great areas that have populations with you know two or three good stores and she's become a go-to bottle for lots of different people and you know it's a really smart strategy that i think a lot of other producers just don't think about for exactly what you said like yeah like if if you take on a, a wine and you really and you push it hard like you can have everyone in a neighborhood drinking that person's wine everyone regardless of the kind of budget they have to go out to you know one restaurant as a special occasion and so i think we have to talk a lot more as an american wine culture about the importance of our shops and yeah, sort of flipping the script to the to to retail from we really do, even, man. Even if it's not so violently visible, right? And I'm not saying like, hey, we should turn around and say that we should ignore like ignore restaurants. No, I think that restaurants and psalms are important too. But if you think about any country with a really incredible wine culture, they all have always had really great stores, right? France is you know Paris is famous for its wine shops. Parts of Italy, et cetera, like that's where consumers go and buy their wines and they have relationships with those people. And so, you know, for the people listening to your podcast, I'll repeat what I always say. Like, if you are a producer and you're thinking about, like, you know, a strategy in terms of who are you inviting to come to your winery, you know, who are you going to meet with? Like, you need to at least be 50 50 with, with your outreach because the shop is way, I mean, and if you didn't realize that in the pandemic, <laughs> Then you, you're 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 probably still well behind the eight ball, but hopefully you did. That you know the shop is really really important when it comes to under and also understanding what consumers actually want and the market and getting your name out there in the market. Awesome. I I have a couple more questions for you, and I want I want to okay. try to uh, respect the constraints of the of the hour timeline if if I can. So totally I want to go a little a little out of order and ask. You know, what are some resources that producers can use in terms of studying the data that you might be able to recommend? So we have ours, obviously, which is Vine Pair Insights. You can sign up for the VP Pro newsletter. 
which we have twice a week, once on Wednesdays, which is sort of recaps of our stories. And then on Fridays, which I think is really useful, is uh, we look at big news stories that have happened throughout the week that we didn't write. And then we give our analysis, right? So, and we look at data to do that. So that's just VP Pro. You can get that through VinePair and just sign and up. Is there and a cost for that? Trade focused. Nope, free. And then VinePair Insights, like if you want actual, you know, custom reports, that costs, but we we do that on a sliding scale depending on your size. Um, look, if you're not looking at Nielsen data and that kind of data, you should you should be. It was kind of amazing to me. I was talking to a producer in Italy and he told me he thinks that he's one of only six wineries and he and he counts like the big groups like Antonori, et cetera, in them that actually pay for like Nielsen, which I think is crazy. Right. You should at least be looking, right? It's it's a really good check. Again, you, you can look at the numbers and see, oh wow, this stuff is still really selling well. You know, and as opposed to just reading sort of lifestyle publications. Like I think we we try to explain like Vine Pair is a lifestyle publication. And so sometimes we do write articles that to say that something's the next big thing that there's not a ton of data support because that's part of what a life, you know, what lifestyle publications do. You, you try to be influential and push the culture in one way or the other. So we're we do that just as much as any other publication does. But then we also do look at data. And if you're someone trying to make money in the business, you know, take the take the trend stories with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Right, just because someone says it's a trend, if they're not giving you real numbers, then that doesn't mean that you should completely turn your entire operation and start making a new style of wine, you know, or like convert to to, to be completely orange wine or or something like that. Right, take it with a grain of salt when it's clearly a trend and they're not backing it up with data. Awesome. Um. So lastly, and uh, I, I I guess um. I'm curious in, in particular to talk to you about about this, and it, it's going slightly off topic, but certainly still uh, having to do with with numbers and, and the future in terms of strategy for either restaurants or wineries or other hospitality endeavors as we as they fight to you know reopen or remain open or what have you, um, which is uh, the concept of dynamic pricing, and I. You know, I'm super. You know, as I as I work to open my own business, this is something that I'm exploring because I'm fascinated by it. It seems like it makes a lot of sense for restaurants, wineries, hospitality operations, things like that, to change the price model a little bit so that you know, to to just to throw out a real simple example, if you have a if you have a a wine pairing, right, like a prefix wine pairing that goes with your prefix menu or you're a winery and you you offer you know a flight of six different wines or whatever it is as a part of your tasting experience at the winery why shouldn't restaurants and wineries be allowed to charge different prices to offer that prefixed uh, item you know on a monday that will cost less as opposed to on a thursday or a friday or a saturday um whenever i bring this up in in just talking to smart people who are not in the industry, but who, you know, who are drinkers and love to go out. They look at me like I just, like I've offended them by saying, <laughs> so, you're, so you're telling me that, that if my neighbor goes to your place on a Tuesday, I got to pay more because I'm going on a Saturday and I'm, and, and it's, I'm just, I'm flabbergasted because I'm like, well, you, dynamic pricing is everywhere. I mean, you didn't That's how you it went to the movies on Friday morning. That didn't cost the same as it did in, on Friday evening, right? And it, it, there's just something about 
the fact that it's food or a restaurant that rubs people the wrong way. And I'm kind of curious what you think dynamic pricing, how dynamic pricing might fit into uh, building back the restaurant industry coming out of uh, out of the pandemic. Well, so first of all, thank you for that question because you know it's a topic for this week's Vine Pair podcast. So can't wait. Uh, um, so I'll give you a little bit of uh, my thoughts so far as I've tried to formulate them. I think that it makes so much sense. You know, like if you choose to go to a restaurant on a Sunday night when the restaurant's slow because everyone was clamoring for the reservations on Friday and Saturday, why shouldn't there it be a little bit cheaper? At the same token, if you get the prime reservation on Friday night at 8.30, why shouldn't you pay more? I think everywhere else, as you said, like the the movies is less on certain times of the day. For people with kids, you probably are aware the babysitter charges more on the weekends when you're asking them to give up their weekend night over a weeknight when they can sit around and probably do homework while they watch your kids, right? There's there are there's different pricing everywhere, and you know it also I think does there's I don't I think the the problem is that the backlash comes from like viewing it as punishing the people that go out on Friday and Saturday nights. It's not a punishment. You're just paying the premium for being there on the night that everyone normally wants to go out. Right. And, and you did it for your you did it for your hotel reservation for right. Times Square on New Year's Eve. That cost right. a lot more than in the middle of August. Like we're and we're rewarding the people that say, look, yeah, like, dude, do I like to like is it easy for me as a business owner to go out to dinner on a Tuesday or Wednesday? No, but like when I do do it, it's it's fun. And if you're gonna make the effort and you're gonna be there when the restaurant's slow, as long as I'm gonna get this, you know, the same level of service, why shouldn't I pay a little bit less? And it will incentivize me potentially to go when the restaurant is slow. And you know what it really will wind up helping is those restaurants who, yeah, every restaurant's packed at the beginning when they have a buzz and you know you can't get a table any night of the week regardless. But then every restaurant's like kind of buzz dies down and they wind up just being packed on the prime Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. And But they're still great restaurants and then you get people in and you keep them excited about the place. And maybe that's also those nights when they can test some other things. Right, because the core menu that everyone's really paying for and paying the premium for. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe the, the chef gets to test some things. You get to try new wines on the list earlier in the week that maybe are different pricing, less pricing, etc. I think it's a really interesting idea, and I think that the restaurant industry should be looking at all of these models right now. Well, and it's it's also it already exists. It's just not transparent in exactly how it's explained. I mean, happy hour. Right. Yep. Completely. Uh, Wine Wednesdays or whatever, like half off bottles on Wednesday nights or brunch. Right. (laughs) This exists everywhere in the restaurant industry already. So I'm just thinking, like, maybe what we maybe all we need to do is to continue to educate. Because the way I try to explain it to people is, look, you you like this restaurant that you go to, you know, once a week or once every other week, right? You want them to stay open, don't you? So then why shouldn't the person who's going and supporting them at 5 p.m. on a Friday as opposed to 7.30 pay a little bit less? You wanted I mean, the, the early bird menu. Seat. Yeah. The early bird menus existed in Florida forever. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my grandparents were champions of the early bird menu. Right. You know, it's like it's funny. Yeah, you're right. Because like 
you know how packed like the deli in Boca used to be on five o'clock on a Friday because of the early bird menu? They did a they did a hell of a business, and then they were still crowded mm-hmm. with the people who still liked going there afterwards, and it made sense. I, I mean, I completely agree. And look, also, if you go at five, which I have gone once in a while because I want to try a place, paying a little less also then makes you feel a little bit more okay with getting pushed. If I'm getting served the same menu at the same price as the person who has the seven thirty reservation, and I got the five, but then all of a sudden I'm being rushed. Right, because right, they, they need that up, table. Then I fucking never am going back to that restaurant again. Mm-hmm. And I understand why they have to do it because they did also seat the prime. But like, if instead my my dinner, I don't know, is twenty five percent off. Cool, I can get up, <laughs> anything up. You know, yep. I understand. I have the the earlier time with the cheaper table. Okay, and so what about? I'll get up when you need to get up. What about this last one for you? And then I'll I'll let you uh, take all this and and put it out on the Vine Pair podcast. What about the last – the well, okay. So Talk, the reservation software, has sort of yeah. become well-known and celebrated for a low percentage of last-minute cancellations. Reason being is that I believe, if not all of Talk, you can certainly set it up this way, that you have to pay a, a, a hefty deposit to to get your you know your table. It's like buying a ticket basically and that has, has hugely eliminated no-shows. Which are a huge problem, listeners. No shows in terms of reservations for whatever it is that you're doing, big problem. And that's why your favorite little neighborhood spot closed. It's because yep. we all made reservations and then didn't show up. Everyone um, plays reservation roulette. Yep. So by, by putting a deposit down, it's you're more likely to show up. I think this is a great tool and we should probably uh, all consider having a, a closer look at it. What about the, the last minute cancellation? Because I think – Talks algorithm has a feature that does this, which is so. Let's say that you know a 9 p.m. reservation in the dining room at Gramercy Tavern. All of a sudden, even with the deposit down or whatever, there's a cancellation, right? I believe the algorithm has a, is able to make it such that all of a sudden the price of the prefix goes down. So if you're scrolling through your reservation software on a Saturday night, last minute, looking for something to do, you just got a 9 p.m prefix at Grammar's Tavern or whatever restaurant that's discounted because there was a last minute cancellation, but they'd rather give make some money than no money at all, right? What do you think about that? I see. I think that's super cool too because I, – so I do this thing on Resi called Notify, but it never seems to work in the evening, right? So like I, there's, there's a new restaurant that's open in Brooklyn that I've really been wanting to go to and – They've been booked solid for the next X months. It's called Gage and Tolner, and oh yeah, the the big new one in the in the historic space, right? Yeah, so I like I really want to check it out. My wife's a vegetarian, and she's even willing to go with me because I think they have like a cauliflower steak or something on. Do the you know menu. the wine director there, Etienne? I do not. Oh, he's a killer classical guitarist, by the way. Just like oh, that's super high, cool. High high level. I saw him play a recital. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, no, I don't. I I don't know any. I don't know anyone behind the the restaurant, but I just want to check it out. And so I've done Notify, but I found that like Notify only war will like you'll get a if you do get an alert that there's a table open, it usually will happen like really early in the morning. So I'm assuming it's like when someone woke up and doesn't feel like it, and Resi s- still sees that there's an opening and notifies probably everyone who's on it. So I've never gotten it right. You have to be really fast. Mm-hmm. But where when when you don't get notified is like. You know, Saturday night, we were sitting around in the evening. It was 6.30. We were still trying to figure out what to do. And like, 
Get, send me a notify at 7.30. I'll still get over to the restaurant if the reservation's at 8.30, 9, 9.30. And that's mm-hmm. when I think right now probably these these systems fail and they're just hoping for a restaurant that busy. There's someone who is standing at the bar waiting. But if you want to really solve that, I think your issue is correct because if you – and I think they're probably also worried at that point, well, what if I live on the Upper West Side or what if I – whatever and I can't now get to Brooklyn because they didn't notify me till 7 for an 8.30 reservation. But if you notified me at 7 for an 8.30 reservation and you also said that there's a discount, not only will I take that reservation, but I'll put myself into whatever the fastest cab is to get down there because at that point, there's a savings. And so you can also – you know sort of justify how everything balances out. Um, I think it's really interesting. Again, I think that the restaurant industry is going to have to play with all of these models and consumers are going to have to understand that that's going to happen because what we have right now is not sustainable. And so to get to that that world that is sustainable, we're going to have to figure out what pricing could look like, how we deal with no-shows, you know, what do wine lists need to be as, as huge as they are? How are we dealing with cocktails? All those things need to be played with in order to get us to a place, I think, where you know we actually have restaurants that are able to be successful and make money. Yep. Well, I, I appreciate that you guys are going to take on the topic and I- again, I'm super excited too. I just think more education on that subject is we really can't do enough of it because I I think we're at large, the hospitality industry is still sort of fixated on stimulus and sort of just getting reopened. And so the more we can educate the consumer in terms of how things are going to look and feel a little bit different when you go out again, the better. And and I hope that more take on, uh, take on that, uh, that challenge as well. So uh, like I think I mentioned to you before, love the podcast. Miss Erica, she was a great addition, but it's, she it's, was, fun, yeah. to have, uh, it's fun to have, uh, you know, the the OG uh, dynamic between you and Zach back in which. You, yeah, you know, you know like, we're, like, we're, we're in the market. We're looking for another another co-host. So you never know. I do want to mention one other thing really quickly because it popped up yeah, in my yeah, brain please. and I'd, I'd be angry myself if I didn't say it. So you brought up millennials, right? Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing people are not, aware of right now and and you're sleeping on them is gen z and they're coming fast and this is a generation that for at least the last three years has entered drinking age consuming seltzer so if you think that that's going to be the same generation that embraces like the flavor profiles of natural wines or whatever no way so what is what's coming then in wine like start thinking about that because i have you know at least 30 to 40% of my employees are are Gen Z and what they're interested in is very different than what the millennials of you know all of us millennials at the office are interested in when it comes to wine when it comes to cocktails etc also just think about you know what they're bringing back in terms of fashion right they have brought with them the 90s they have brought you know, wide leg jeans they're they're bringing back Birkenstocks all that kind of stuff and with fashion comes fashion of drinks. I anticipate the Cosmos coming back in a big way. I anticipate we're going to see a lot of maybe other classic kind of 90s-esque beverages. So that may not be the kombuchas of the world. That may be something different. So it's just, I think the wine industry didn't pay you know attention to millennials soon enough. And they have an opportunity now to start paying attention to Gen Z as they're coming into wine drinking, you know, only two or three years, I think is the oldest Gen Z is 25 or 26. So there's time still. 
Uh, so pay attention. Does that does that translate to sort of just more basic and plain, less bells and whistles, more of a more of a, a you know sprite flavor profile, and less like you said kombucha. Well, so less definitely less sour. If you think about seltzer flavor profiles, the fruit is very present. It's it's much more about the purity of fruit when it comes to seltzer. So maybe we're going to go back to like wines that taste of fruit. I don't Snapple. know. Snapple. Yeah, I mean they're <laughs> yeah they're all about you know that, which I think is interesting. We're working on some pieces about that. Like what happens when you know the keg party in college isn't Bud Light anymore? It's truly like I don't know, but that's what's happening. So, so wineries look out for Gen culture? Z. And get your get your force carbonated muscat Altenel <laughs> ready for them. One hundred percent. Adam, thank you so much. It's always uh, course, fun and exhilarating to rap with you. Uh, and I look forward, as I do every week, to the Vine Pair podcast. Everybody, check out the Vine Pair podcast. Read Vine Pair in print. Always really, really good and informative stuff there. Um, and once again, thank you to Dave Miller. Check him out. Dave is uh, the composer and instrumentalist of our opening and closing music. DaveMillerGuitar.com. Thanks again, Adam, and uh, we'll, uh, I'll check in with you soon, as I always do. Thanks, man.